How you doing, fella? I'm better. I'm uh, answering a couple of. I'm trying to multitask. Some, oh, it's a tricky thing to very, do, man. Don't you do that? I am. I am uh, living the dream. Oh, that's good. What kind of dream is it? A good one or a bad one? That's got monsters in it. I oh, like monsters. Know. I had a nightmare as a kid about a fire-breathing elephant. <laughs> that was both cool and terrifying. Did he burn his tusks off, or uh, he he could could shoot fire out of his big toes and out of his trunk? Wow. And you know those kind of billowy Spielberg clouds? That's what, you know, the real storming. That's what it looked like just before the elephant came. I had a, I was a disturbed child. I like the smell of foam latex. Foam latex. It's smelly, but good. Amazing. Latex is cool stuff, man. Well, it is. Now we wanted to chat about foam latex, and it all started because you mentioned that you you baked a, a mold with foam latex in it in a parking lot. Is that right? Yeah, I was I was teaching some classes um, at the engineer guy uh, Nelson Burke's shop in Atlanta, Georgia. He had, this was Guon Four. Every July, he has a a weekend of workshops and classes and vendor displays and, and stuff at his shop. And he invited me to come teach a couple of classes that went, which turned into four classes that I kind of mm -hmm. co-taught with uh, Atlanta artist, uh, Brian Reynolds. And we had a ball. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. You know, we, we got to do, do a color theory class, which we kind of combined with, with foam latex because just the way some, weird scheduling and a couple of last minute dropouts worked out and mm -hmm. did a, an flat mold encapsulated silicone class. And what else did we do? Oh, a wig and wig and hair, hand laid hair class. So we kind of pulled a rabbit out of our hat for a couple of classes. Cause I was only planning on doing the, the foam latex and the encapsulated pieces class mm -hmm. and wound up doing hair and color theory. Thankfully, I know a bit about color theory, so we had some fun with that one, and all in all, it turned out great. And Nelson had lined up an oven, had a little small scientific oven. It was maybe big enough for a human head to fit mm -hmm. in. One of the molds that I had brought with me, we injected. It was a collapsible core mold for a seamless neck piece, and we injected it, and it wouldn't fit in the, the oven, and, and since it was about... 97 degrees outside and even hotter in the parking lot because of the pavement. I said, you know, let's just go stick this outside and see what happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and turned out pretty good. Well, how long did you uh, bake it for? Put it in the parking lot all day. And then just for, for extra measure, I put it out in, in uh, the driveway at my parents' house where I was <laughs> staying while I was in Atlanta um, for another half day and didn't, didn't demold it until I got back to Denver, you know, a few days later. And it would turn out beautiful, very soft, wow. <laughs> and fully cured. We made sure that it gel stuck it outside. That was that was the critical part to make sure that everything gelled. But oddly enough, didn't do anything different with the run schedule, the mixing, and and everything for the foam latex in that I do here in Denver. <laughs> That's amazing. Huge huge humidity difference, big elevation difference. Um, Essentially the same run. I think I 
made just a gelling agent a little bit, which we can we can talk more about all the, the different ingredients. But it was essentially the same same run schedule that I do here, and the foam turned out beautifully. Gelled in about ten minutes, and popped it outside and just let it sit in the sun. That's really really cool, man. Yeah. So if time is not a factor, you don't even have to heat it up. It'll just room temperature cure all by itself. One of the injection guns that I took with me to show, just to show off, um, there was a foam plug in the in the bottom of the gun from when we injected a, a Shrek cowl that had been sitting in the in the gun since I think end of November. Popped it out, fully cured, just as soft as can be. Wow. <laughs> so foam just will bake over time. It just needs enough time to do it. It's just practical to have that quicker. So we put it in yeah. an oven to yeah. accelerate. If you need that. it in a hurry, you're going to have to heat it up. But if, if time is of no concern, just let it sit. So basically, we want to recap what we're going to be talking about this time is foam latex, which is, is a big material. It doesn't get as much attention as it used to. But um, foam latex was like the material that we made pretty much everything out of back in the day and, and there seems to be a history. resurgence of it yeah i wonder why that is what do you think that's mm. uh becoming so popular I'm not sure um kind of noticed it the last time i was at imats in los angeles i think it was 2013 and everybody was doing foam latex demos it seemed i wonder if everyone's just got kind of not bored of silicon but there's uh there's, there's there's some kind of uh, mileage in having you know foam latex being used when everyone knows what silicon's going to do it's Quite spectacular, I think, to right. see yeah, foam run. There's a decided learning curve to foam. My, my first job was ever, uh, my first effects job was running foam latex at Animated Extras in 1994. And that was uh, an interesting three months of uh, a lot of uh, me measuring out foam and mixing it up and injecting it and finding all that kind of stuff. Um, doesn't get used nearly as much, I don't think, but it's still still got its place. But um, it'd be interesting to chat about you yep. know, what your experience Absolutely. is of foam and everything. I think you've run probably a lot more foam than I have. And it seems to be quite popular in the States, I think. Yeah. You know, and, and Roland Blancafleur has got his, you know, RBFX out of custom foam pieces, which mm -hmm. are brilliant. I don't know if you've you've had a chance to see any I've of seen them. I've seen them beautifully sculpted yeah. i've never actually seen the, the final pieces myself oh, i've never handled them but the, the sculpts look amazing yeah he's got some terrific guys doing the sculpts and and the foam itself is is spectacular uh so you were at gucon and i've never been to a gucon that sounds like fun what did you get up to <laughs> it was it was uh it was great there were probably close to a couple hundred people there each each day saturday and sunday but i met a couple of kids there um ethan and molly i think ethan's 13 and molly's 12 mm -hmm. oh my god these two kids they know what they want to do and i'm going to do everything i can to encourage them they they brought in uh ethan brought in a, a rubber mask that he had sculpted and cast which was really cool and they both have my book and they listen to our podcasts and showed me their portfolios and at 12 and 13 these kids have some professional quality work that we were everybody that looked at it was just blown away wow that's amazing and they've been they've been real fortunate uh, their their parents are are very supportive and they've met some wonderful people last year at Gucon uh, John Blake and and a number of people working on Guardians of the Galaxy 2 so they're getting some some encouragement, and they just happen to be Atlanta right now is is a great place to be production wise. So mm. they they're getting exposed to a lot of great stuff. 
Oh, fantastic. How cool is that? That's really, yeah. really cool. I'd love to uh, yeah. send some pictures of their stuff. Maybe they'll email us some, uh, some pictures through or something. I It'd hope be really so. Cool that would to be see. great. But, uh, but I'm glad you give them a shout out because I, I, it's lovely when you see people that are like, you know, they're kind of kindred spirits. doesn't matter what age they are. They, you can see that they really care about something that you care about. It's like. Absolutely. You know, and, they're, and, they're, and they're trying. They're actually doing it. They're working on it. And it's, it's really cool to hear. Yeah, their first attempts are way better than my first attempts. <laughs> so watch this space. I think uh, there'll be some new Stan Winston's running around. My first job ever um, back in 1994 was running foam latex uh, to animated extras. I remember having to mix up all the chemicals in this mixer. I had a huge mixer, a Hobart food mixer. It was like 40 liters of uh, foam. Oh, it's like a bathtub running those yeah it's like a bathtub you have you know kilos of, of latex you're measuring out and whipping it up and then sticking it into these massive syringes and then injecting them into molds i remember one time i actually mixed up a whole batch this must have been i don't know like a half a bathtub's worth of foam and then flipping the mold over and, and realizing i hadn't actually put an injection tube in this mold <laughs> but i'd already i'd already <laughs> whipped up my foam yeah. i was like oh so i had to kind of ditch that very quietly in the dumpster and uh Hopefully my boss, who's not listening to this, uh, although this was like 20 odd years ago, but even so, uh, yeah, that was a lesson learned. So uh, uh, don't get blasé about that. You've got to yeah, no, it's, <laughs> make sure it's all your ducks are in you're line. You're going to forget because you, you clearly still remember it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, so uh, make sure you got everything ready before you start running your foam because that's the last thing you need to worry about. One of the first um, batches of foam I ever ran uh, turned out horribly. It was kind of like watching a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> or something out of like uh, Fantasia. It was, <laughs> it was, it was bizarre. I was running GM foam, and I was following the the the, the GM foam schedule precisely. This is before Gil Mosco told me, "Don't be a slave to the schedule." You know, you're going to want to fudge here and fudge there and figure out what works best for you. But I was following it precisely. Added the gelling agent, everything, all mixed, and going to pour it into the mold. And it seized up in mid-pour, just kind of froze halfway through the pour from the bowl into the mold. That's terrifying. I know was, that. I've had it that was, happen. It was awful and hilarious at the same time. Because mm -hmm. you've spent all that time measuring and you're with it every inch of the way and you whip it up and you're and it's pouring to your syringe. And, yeah, just kind of oh, terrifying. So I guess we should start with, uh, for, for those that don't know, is, is let's just explain what is foam latex and why would we use it as a material? Because it's, it's a pretty fundamental material, but it's it's not something many people dabble in because there's a bunch of stuff you kind of need to have to do it. Not, not a huge amount of stuff, but you do need some no, things. And, and people have asked, well, what can you use casting latex, you know, the mask rubber for foam mm -hmm. latex? Not really. I mean, even though the latex all comes from the same place, pretty much, mm -hmm. there are very few sources in the world where you can get latex rubber it comes from the havea tree and it only can be it's only harvested in in southeast asia and south asia you know uh, malaysia indonesia philippines finite number of trees and the world supply of of latex rubber whether it's for gloves or condoms or prosthetics or masks or golf balls it all comes from the same trees so, uh, so foam latex. So it's that. That's the higher solid stuff, isn't it? It's got a much higher, yeah, much higher solids count than than the other stuff. And then you put it in a in a in a in a, in a bowl with a mixer, and I guess it, it's a, some kind of soap and, and stabilizing chemicals to kind of basically whip it up like a meringue. So yep, you actually add a, air, curing agent, which which you know, you know, so you're removing the ammonia because ammonia is added as a, as a carrier 
So if you if mm-hmm. you ever need to th- if your latex is getting really thick and you need to thin it out, you want to thin it with ammonia, not with water, because mm-hmm. w- water will weaken the rubber. Right. Though there is a fair amount of water already in it, which is why a lot of people use gypsum, you know, stone molds for doing their foam latex, so that the water in the in the rubber will absorb into the stone and help aid in the in the curing process. And when you do, sure. do that, you know, when when the stone is absorbing the water, your foam is going to shrink less when it cures because the water has already been removed. Mm. And I guess also it comes out of the mold dry or drier. Yeah. Because certainly we use a lot of fiberglass molds over here in England. And um, when we run foam latex in them, we do, you know, they do tend to be wet or slightly damp because they've been, you know, in a mold that the moisture can't escape from. Yeah, even even the, the mold that we did in the parking lot was an epoxy mold. And mm-hmm. even f- like close to five days after we baked it in the parking lot, when I finally demolded it, it was still, it was still damp. Mm-hmm. I guess that's where you get with those those steam lakes where you get like basically, I don't know if it, if it is pure steam or if it's just basically moisture that accumulates inside there, but it it can cause damage to the surface of the piece, can't it? Because you get like yeah, well, depressions where that that happens. And since you're you're cooking at, at lower temperatures, you know, water boils at two hundred twelve degrees Fahrenheit. Um, mm-hmm. The mold is is under pressure because you've got it got it clamped shut. It's closed, so that. Water is gonna gonna reach a steam steam velocity at a lower temperature than it would in a in an open bowl on the stove. Because that's the thing with foam latex is it, when it when it gels. So you put your gelling agent. You whip, you typically the, the the schedule that I recall basically you you add all your chemicals together except the gelling agent, which is the right. basic cure up. You you put it in your oven at a, uh, in your oven. You put it in your mixer at a high speed for a short time, and it expands in volume because you've added air to it and then you refine it for a longer period of time which means the air bubbles get smaller and the cell size each bubble then becomes smaller and then at some point after that when enough ammonia has been beaten out of it too because you don't want too much because i recall the the amount of ammonia that was left in the latex can affect the gelling time so absolutely yeah you refine it for too long that's where the fudging comes into it you know depending on how how high you want want the foam to froth up and and expand in volume. Now, the higher the volume, the lighter the foam, but it's also not going to pour easily. It's You have to force it into, into some areas. Mm. Um, and you can also adjust uh, the, the refining time when you're, when you're deammonizing the, the rubber. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can adjust that too. And then what I do, t- typically they say, you know, the GM f- schedule says, add your gelling agent when you've got three minutes left. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 14 grams of gelling agent. I generally wait until I've got about a minute and a half left in the schedule. And I will do almost, I'll do maybe 20 grams of gelling agent. And I've been getting really good results there. But the key is if you're, if you're adjusting anything from the prescribed instructions, make really detailed notes of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to, you want to make notes of what, what your air temperature might, might be, humidity, um, how much of your curing agent, what brand you're using, the date and batch numbers, same with foaming agent, uh, the gelling agent, latex base. And, and uh, Monster Makers has changed their basic, what used to be a, a batch would be 150 grams of, 
of latex base, and now they're recommending 170 grams of of base okay. with everything else remaining the same. It's essentially it's it's um I think the is it the gelling agent or the curing agent is 10% of of the base. But then you want to also you know if you're adding anything else a flow enhancer or um, a stabilizer, you know an accelerator. You, you want to list what those are, how much you use, what your mixing times for everything are, pigmentation, how much pigmentation, you know, how many drops of color you're adding to it and what color it is, your gel time from start to finish, you know, from the time you add the gelling agent to the time you notice it actually starting to gel and then when it finishes. Mm -hmm. Because starting to gel and being completely gelled are not the same thing. Sure. I mean, it can it can kind of snap set on you. But, yeah, it, uh, it can kind of snap like, world, like in bit four if you're if you're me. Uh, <laughs> then, you, then your baking time, you know, when you put it in the oven, when you're bringing it out, and you got to remember also that you know whatever mold you're using, however thick that is, you've, your mold has to have time to heat up before that heat's going to transfer into the foam. So you've got to factor that in too. Sure. So stone molds typically they need to be cooked for longer. And and allowed to yeah. cool down as well because if they contract too quickly, they'll 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 crack and damage. So, you know, a stone head and a fiberglass head of the same size would cook at radically different times because the fiberglass will heat up, you know, within 20, 10, 15 minutes and then start cooking the foam. Yep. Whereas a, a stone mold that maybe weighs I don't know hundred pounds will probably take uh, a couple of hours to get up to temperature before it starts actually yeah, cooking the foam. And then the same between down. A, a mold that's that maybe a half an inch thick to a mold that's an inch and a half to two inches thick in some places. Mm -hmm. Your oven temperature, what you're, the temperature you're cooking at it is, something you need to document as well as what the mold's made out of and then what your results are. Typically, you know, the again going back to the GM foam instructions, even even Monster Makers or Berman, I think, are all pretty much similar run schedules. Um, say 185 degrees Fahrenheit is your maximum cooking temperature. Mm -hmm. I cook at 135 degrees, quite a bit lower, and it gives you a much bigger window of of when you can can remove the mold, so you don't have to be if you're going to be in there for four hours. And you let it sit for five hours at 185 degrees, your foam is going to be burned at 135 degrees. No problem. So the longer, the, the lower the temperature, the bigger the window for getting it out without burning the foam. You're less likely to have steam pockets at a lower temperature and your foam's going to be softer. Sure. But the trade-off is the time. So it's always the trade-off is the, the time. Lot. Absolutely. And, and so as... Time is time is a huge factor in some of the stuff that we have to do. Yeah. I mean, I think the good thing about baking is if you're set up to do it, it's the kind of thing you can do around other things and you know you're going to be cooking either overnight or you, you bake it during the day and let it cool down overnight or something. So you, you work smart. So you work around, you know, you build in the fact that you're going to have to, you know, you maybe get a run in a day. So you've got to work around that and not, you know, try and crank this out. And I wonder if that kind of attention to materials and you know and the, the the attention you've got to pay to do it to do it you know you've got to make a list of temperature and things it's quite demanding on your of your attention and time absolutely and that's and that that's probably one, one of, the of the reasons why yeah why it's fallen out of favor so much because people just go well i just mix a and b and deadener and pour it and it, it sets you know there's there's less to be concerned with so because of that it's probably fallen out of a lot of people's favor because it's it it, it requires less of them to run silicon than it does foam 
and what what it's going to be used for also is is going to dictate what material you use. Doing a, a full body silicone suit might look really cool and move well, but oh my god, the weight of it is going to be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, a good many of the full body suits are are foam latex suits that are fused into. Um, I don't know whether it's a power mesh or spandex or what what the the core of the suit is made out of, but foam latex is going to be much more comfortable for a performer to wear. Yeah, I mean, but I remember it doesn't we move did a lot the of... same way silicone does. It collapses on itself. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, foam. That's the. I think that's the the main big you know advantage of foam latex is it's much much lighter because it's basically a sponge. I've had pieces glued on me that I forgot I was wearing because they're so light. Mm-hmm. So they're light, but they're also absorbent as well. So when people sweat, the moisture is wicked out or away from the body into the foam, which may make the foam damp, but it does mean they tend to stick a bit better because the moisture than the sweat that builds up behind it doesn't stay there. It can actually pass through the, the foam. Yep. <laughs> so you find sometimes you, you often get that with big silicon makeups when uh, people get very sweaty, get these big pockets of moisture, like bubbles of sweat actually appearing under the piece because the sweat can't go anywhere. You know, it's trapped between, you know, the skin and the back of the cat plastic of the piece. Um, whereas foam latex, it, it, I've had it with packs where you get little bubbles of pack in under the packs of the foam, but um, yeah, because that essentially is sealing it. But it, it's sealing it but, it, it, but it, but it's still much better than uh, than a complete silicon mask in terms of sweat absorption. Um, so it's something you know, if you're going to be filming in a very hot desert, or it was a a stunt thing, and there was a lot of you know action involved, and they were going to be sweating profusely, it may be a good idea to do it in foam Absolutely. for that reason. You know, yeah. Um, especially maybe even for stunt performance or something where it's not that close to camera, and you need the durability of it. Well, every material is going to have its its little quirks and idiosyncrasies, and foam latex is certainly no stranger to that. Um, you know, by its very nature, it's opaque. So, painting it to try to get the the level of translucency that comes pretty naturally to most silicone appliances, you mm-hmm. have to work at it because you have to do layers of, of of translucent color, which can can be nice if you're if you if you're doing it say with an alcohol palette or or um, thin creams that you're that you're flicking on, then you're going to maintain that that breathability of the foam so that your actor's comfort is is going to be up at its higher levels. So the main reasons, uh, what is it and why use it? Um, foam latex is basically uh, latex that we're all familiar with but instead of being used as a liquid it's whipped up into a foam uh so it actually can be you know injected into sort of big thick pieces or solid suits or molds in it and be be cast in in pretty thick sections and it's spongy and lightweight so that's that's what it is and, and we'd use it because it's lightweight and uh and a lot more sort of comfortable i guess for big body suits as well agreed but like you say there are some disadvantages to it most of which i suppose are down to how it's how it's made which if you're set up to make foam latex, if you have a foam room and foam runners, it's not a big deal. But if it's something you want to dabble with, it's, it's a little bit trickier because you've got to acquire all these things and, and have a dedicated space for it as well. It's not really something you want to be doing in your house necessarily. Or, no, you don't uh, want to be in cooking it in, in the oven that you're doing meatloaf in because subsequent meatloaves will all taste very sulfury. Yeah. Food, <laughs> food, to do. food, yeah, food and foam latex in the same oven not a good idea i remember you said something about uh, the first foam run you ever made you you actually mixed up with a handheld 
electric whisk? Yeah, is that, or is I, that a handheld a little, whisk? A little, and a little electric hand mixer that I, I still have it. Uh, I've still got mine. I did the same great. thing. It's amazing, isn't it? It's weird when you said that. I got this, and I think the thing is, as my mum makes it, I've still got it. I've still got that actual. I don't really use it anymore, but I still have that same mixer and the two beater heads that go with it. Yeah, it's a handheld um, mix. It's amazing. Yeah, it was. It was a weird thing, but first, yeah, it, the first oven I had was nothing more than a plywood box with um, foam insulation on the inside and infrared heat lamps. So not not real precise uh temperature control but, but it kind of worked but we but it worked so with regards to ovens you kind of need something like you say that you can adjust the temperature to uh but the temperature that it goes to isn't that hot it's basically you know the temperature of boiling water or less it doesn't yeah. need to be that hot it doesn't need to be like big ceramic tiles and fireproofed outer and all that no, kind of stuff it, it, yeah, it comes plywood down to but if you're if you're remodeling your kitchen or you know you know somebody that's remodeling their kitchen see if they'll give you their old oven you know it's mm-hmm. probably wired to 220 but you can easily rewire it to 110 and boom there's your first foam oven mm-hmm. i built a big one a couple of years ago and in fact i did a video tutorial of the of the construction that's up on my youtube channel built the whole thing for for about 600 bucks it's the size of a refrigerator the the actual mold area is three feet by three feet by two feet deep uh, the thermostat will go up to 250 degrees the heating elements capable of reaching 900 degrees uh, i've got a blower on it so i've got air circulating basically created a convection oven so there's air circulating through it all the time and man i love this thing Amazing. I think it's good to to, to mention that that circulating circulation of air is circulation a very big deal. of air is hugely important. Otherwise, you get hot spots and cold spots in your oven, and you might not know whereabouts that is. And your mold could be sitting somewhere, you know, where it's slightly cooler, and you've got a you know a thermostat or or a thermometer stuck in at the top that's registering you know the heat you like, and actually the thing you're cooking is three feet below that and isn't anywhere near that temperature because obviously heat rises. So yep. it's good to have a fan or some kind of circulation to go in there. And make sure it's rated for the temperatures that you're going to be running. Otherwise, you're going to be replacing it all the time. But I ordered everything that I've got um, here in the States through Granger and McMaster Car. I'm sure you've got similar industrial supply places in the UK. Uh, okay. But I bought a Dayton blower, high-temp blower. That was the, It was the blower and the thermostat were the two most expensive components of the, of the oven. Okay. Uh, ther- I think the thermostat was a couple hundred bucks. The blower was almost three hundred, and everything else, you know, plywood. Uh, I just it all came together from from Home Depot and banged it together in a weekend. That's the way to do it, dude. Yeah. Because <laughs> you need to be able to control that that heat. So it's either something like you say, like a either an, in- an industrial oven sounds scary, but just an, like a, a baker's oven or an industrial oven that. It's not so much because it needs to get hot. It's just so that you have the control to be able to say, oh, five degrees lower. And, you know, the oven will do that. Whereas, you know, a, a, a typical conventional kind of oven you get in a domestic kitchen isn't necessarily going to have the same level of control. No, and, and the, the temperature is going to fluctuate much more wildly. I think uh, um, my thermostat, when it reaches the prescribed temperature, when it hits 135 degrees, the heating element shuts off. And sh- and turns back on again um, mm-hmm. when it gets to I think 128 degrees. So it's it's not there's not a big 
temperature fluctuation, whereas uh, you know an actual kitchen type oven that's been repurposed could go from 130 degrees and then it'll shut off and it might get down to maybe 90 degrees before it turns back on again. They do have commercial foam ovens, you know, at shops like K&B, big walk-in ovens that you mm-hmm. can put two or three suit-sized molds into. Yeah. I mean, these things are huge. Yeah. But not not very practical for somebody who's got a studio at home because it's <laughs> the the electric bill to to run a, a batch of foam for a suit is going to be your monthly electric bill for the rest of the year. That's right. And if you're running, you know, just a nose piece, you don't want to have to cook up an oven that big just to bake that small nose. So you need the ability to either change the volume of the oven and the inside of the oven, or you have different ovens. (laughs) So you can either, there's like a, you know, a sliding bottom, so you can actually make the oven space smaller. Yeah. Well, I've got uh, a a dehydrator. I've got a fruit and jerky dehydrator that I use uh, when I'm making prosade transfer pieces, when I'm drying those things out, that's got a high enough temperature setting on it that I could take some of the shelves out of that and put small molds in my dehydrator yeah, and, and cook them. Uh, I remember uh, I got um, a couple of books years ago, and I think they may still be in print. I don't know. But you can probably track them down. A couple of books. Well, I was, that are I was looking. I, I thought I had one. I thought I had Donna Drexler's book myself. Because you mm-hmm. you emailed it to me, you know, the foam latex survival manual, yeah, or the foam latex nine one one. I know I've got one of them somewhere on my shelves, but I I, I I've got so much stuff in my shop, I can't find anything. <laughs> well, I've still got somewhere tucked away. I've got the foam latex nine one one book. I remember buying it. I think at the first trade show. 1997 when i went to the to imats in la and uh i saw this book and i was like oh and i recognized the name drexel i was like, oh my god that's i think Drex- that's where i bought that's it Doug as well. yeah. um, <laughs> so so it's worth mentioning that those are, i don't know if they're in print anymore but i'm pretty sure well, the, 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 the magazine foam latex survival them? manual is no longer in print i i okay. looked it up to see and that's like the beginner's one and then there's more an advanced yeah. one which is the foam latex but they're both by donna drexel and i think they're both still available. They may not be in print, but they're also not the kind of book that lots of people are buying. So I think you, I think Makeup Artist Magazine did have it for sale, but it's worth looking those up. Again, I'll, I'll put the names of these things on the blog post so you can actually see these uh, and look those up. Because I think those are two like well-regarded Bibles on the subject, um, particularly the 911, you know, to kind of get you out of a fix. And then there's, you know, on, on Facebook, uh, um, Neil Gorton's Makeup Effects 911 is also a great source. There are, I think, there are threads and and posts regarding foam latex up there that people can can look into and and get some information. And it's also if if you can't find the information, maybe we didn't include it in this, or you can't find it someplace. All you got to do is ask a question there, and people are easy uh, about responding to to inquiries as long as you've at least shown some effort to do a little homework before resorting to asking questions there. It's probably worth a quick going through the different types of foam and formulas because obviously there's 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 more than one just one foam. There's there's quite a few different foams out there. Yeah. Depending on what you're going to use. But uh, so you were saying about the GM foam. Which GM is foam. A well known one. Berman foam, monster makers. They I th- I think they may all have slightly different formulations for their their foaming agent and curing agent Um, Mm -hmm. but the gelling agent formula is the same across the board for everybody 
but but regardless for that all the, all these different phones they're 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 not the same phone necessarily but they're, they're very similar very similar I think people should should take sort of comfort in the fact that they're not radically different things it's not like a pc and a mac where they're completely different software no. it's like you know no. they're, they're both and but then and, and they're also both um you know uh modifiable depending on like you say atmospheric conditions and yeah and it's interchangeable you know, if you if you've got if you've got if you uh a you know, a jug of, of monster makers foam, but all you have, but you've run out of their foaming or curing agents and you've got GM foaming and curing agent, use it, you know, it doesn't just because you run out of it, you can use, you can intermix the stuff, but just, you know, document it, make sure you take notes if you're changing something. So just a, a quick thing about uh, subscribing as well and leaving a review on iTunes because it does help us a lot when people leave a review on iTunes. I just think it's the way that things like iTunes work. When people actively are listening and they respond and leave a review, it just tells iTunes that you know they have an active community of people that are following something, so it helps us out. So I just want to say a quick thanks to AceB85 who left a review, and he said, great podcast. I'll just read this review to you. He said, as someone new to the industry, just starting out as a student, this show has been a godsend and there's been extra hints and tips that are really useful and can be used in future parts of my course. Big thumbs up to Stuart and Todd. Keep up the good work, boys. Thanks very much, Ace B. Thanks, Ace. Appreciate it. But we need more of those. That would be amazing if you could. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've, uh, today I've also uh, added us to Google Play because Google Play are... Uh, obviously uh, not available in the UK, but Google Play are um, hosting uh, podcasts as well. So like if you're an iTunes user, there's a good chance you have iTunes on your iPhone. But if you're an Android user, which is um, a decent share of the portion of people who are using handsets, myself, I'm an Android user. I use an app called Pocket Casts, but uh, they're also on Google Play. Hopefully, we should be there soon, and also iHeartRadio. So, if you're a user of one of those things, uh, you can track us down. Just look up Battles with Bits of Rubber, and we should be on there too. So, you can download and subscribe to us there. But if you are on iTunes uh, and you're subscribing to us, then uh, please do leave a, a review. We would really uh, appreciate it. And as always, if you've got questions, you can email us at Stuart and Todd at gmail.com. We've had some very good ones, actually. I did a, a short video earlier this week just to remind people to uh, to get in touch with their questions. We had some very, very interesting ones, so I'm going to be uh, plowing through those. Uh, I want to talk more about uh, – there's the making of it, which is one whole thing. But like you were saying with the uh, with the, um, the, the Roland uh, Blanchfield pieces, you know, there are a lot more people that are actually applying them that won't necessarily have to run the foam, but they need to know how to handle the pieces and work with them. So I think – uh, a little extra talk about on that. We well, just to give you an idea, for the foam latex class that I taught at at GooCon, I had a ten-page handout. Oh, just wow. of details and and tips and tricks and some of the stuff that we're talking about here that they could take away with them. Would you Would you be prepared to uh, include that as a download for our listeners? Do you think? Yeah, of course. <gasps> so we put this on the podcast and people can download that thing. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be amazing. Oh, that'd be so cool. Let's do that. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think it's probably worth um, uh, looking, just looking at the good things and the bad things of foam. So we say foam latex is lightweight, which is good, and it's moisture absorbent, which is you know good, good for suits and stuff. It also shrinks a bit, which can be good and it, it can does. Be bad. And that can be good and bad. Um, the, the, so why would it be a good thing that it shrinks? Um, 
Well, you know, if, if you are going to be putting it on, say you sculpted something on a, on a large face, but it's going to be going on to a smaller actor, the fact that it's shrunk a little bit might provide for a better fit. You know, if you're doing generic pieces, depending on what it is, I, I suppose is going to dictate whether shrinkage is a, is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, the denser the foam, the more shrinkage there's going to be. So the higher volume, the less flowy foam is going to shrink less because there's more air in it. Yeah, so it's just, it doesn't flow as much, but because there's more air in it, it doesn't shrink as much because a larger percentage of what it is is air. So there's less water in that mix. Mm -hmm. I guess as well, if you're doing like a big creature suit, what you don't, the last thing you want is a big baggy suit that that, that rattles around like a denigon on your skin. So yeah, so the uh, fact that you know, it, a suit so that, the fact that it's shrinking. tight. Yeah, yeah it would be like a, you know, like a wetsuit. It's very stretchy, so a slightly tight fit is a good thing. And because of that, mm-hmm. I think because especially like creature suits, because they're so tight often to put on, um, it, they need to be really ideally foamed onto uh, some kind of reinforcement. So lycra or spandex or some kind of stretchy fabric is put onto the core first and then inserted into the mold with the with the fabric stuck to the core and then the foam is injected around that and then baked in and then the foam flows over everything including the lycra or the yeah. fabric Which as I'm a liquid and then do are you ready <laughs> and then yeah, when I'm, you I'm, bake I'm, it it yeah, cooks in i'm going to be doing a production of um the toxic avenger oh wow musical <laughs> version like of that. so rather than doing silicone with the fabric we're going to do foam latex Oh wow, that's that's great my idea. that's my plan at this stage anyway. It'll be much <laughs> it'll be much nicer for the actor who's playing playing Toxie. Yeah, because we had a, a, a like I said earlier, we had some interesting emails about different things. Uh, a guy called Andrew Butler had uh, emailed us about making a creature suit. Now I've made a few creatures. I've been involved in a few creature suits, but I haven't done dozens and dozens of them. But uh, I have done enough to kind of know what the problems are, and, and more often than not, they're problems um, that people don't realize. But one of them was. The big one would be the fact that you need to cast up uh, onto a lycra suit or something underneath because you're going to pull on the foam so much to get it on your skin, especially like a pair of trousers or a pair of pants. You know, you've got to get your whole leg into this thing. You've really got to yeah, pull it like a, like a tight wetsuit. You need that extra reinforcement. So if you're pulling on just the foam, that foam will rip. So you need to be pulling on that fabric. So you actually need that fabric in there. It's not something you add afterwards. It's actually on the core to begin with. And you inject your foam around that and then you bake it in place. And then when the suit comes off, like when you spill latex on a pair of jeans, it knits into that fabric as a liquid and then it dries as a solid and you can't get it out. So it just means that stretch is actually coming from the fabric and not from the, from the, um, from the latex itself. But I remember seeing as well in the, um, I think it was the first or second makeup artist magazine. Uh, and it was uh, the Nutty Professor makeup. And they were talking about how they had extended the length of the neck on the Eddie Murphy headcast in order to counteract the fact that the phone would shrink in baking. So that if they didn't do that, if they put the face piece on, because I think the neck and the some of the upper chest and the face pieces were one big piece. So if it shrank without that, it just meant the piece was too short for his neck. So they actually made the neck on the core longer to begin with, sculpted on that. And then when the piece shrank 10% or whatever it was, the piece shrank to the correct size. So they actually anticipated the the shrinkage and actually modified the cores accordingly. Well, one of the reasons that um, Dick Smith began doing the overlapping multi-piece prosthetic appliances was for the very fact that, that foam latex shrinks. So that when you re-sculpt the pieces on, on the various snaps of of a of a 
face, you know, if you after you've separated it and floated it off and resculptured it, you're extending those pieces so that they'll overlap and takes that shrinkage into account, allowing them yeah, all to then, fit better. Otherwise, otherwise you try to put you know a full face piece on where it's, you've sculpted it and cast it in all in one piece. It's shrunk so much that you're stretching it to try to get it to fit over the nose, and you've got a gap at the bridge of the nose where the nose and the forehead meet. But if you overlap and and extend the sculpture, mm-hmm. then all of those pieces will still fit and and blend properly. It's it's so cool the the amount of work that's gone into this over the years and people like Dick Smith just you know and we all use these techniques as just standard now and it's like you know there was a time where that wasn't what people did you know they had to get figured out you know over time yep and it's incredible that all that uh, comes to be you know just kind of like standard practice now people just use those techniques without even realizing where they came from yeah amazing stuff. Um, so yeah, so you got your shrinkage and also I guess the foam. Uh, the other thing that's can be an issue with foam is if so, obviously if somebody is allergic to latex and that's something you wouldn't use on them. No. But uh, that aside, it's also the smell. You know, it, it's a little bit whiffy because I think a lot of it's to do the latex has a smell anyway, but the ammonia smell. So I got to admit, Stuart, up, I like the smell of foam latex. <laughs> totally using that as a soundbite. <laughs> That was perfect. I love the smell of latex in the morning. No, too early in the morning. You'd be running it all night. Then it's no fun. Oh, yeah, but it does smell a bit. So if you're in like a, an enclosed space and you're running like a big batch of foam, you do need to have extraction to get that out because it's not good for you to breathe in ammonia Ew. fumes. You know, it's basically like ammonia smelling salts. Sulfur, but, but, not not healthy. So those those are things you've got to kind of take into account. And uh, you want to talk about what the other ingredients are actually made of, what what their purpose is. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing to look at. So you've got your, your basic, your base, which is your foam latex base, which is the high solids latex, which is the first component. So we know that's pretty much water and latex and the ammonia that they add to that, which is uh, like a preservative. And then you've got your foaming agent, which is essentially a soap solution that bonds to the cells of the latex and it lowers the surface tension of the latex and allows it to froth and, and rise up more easily. Because if you don't add that foaming agent, that that soapy the you'll just whip the foam and it'll it'll collapse back on itself it won't won't stay foamed right so it's just like when you put like putting dishwashing detergent you know in in a bucket of water and then when you agitate the surface it bubbles up and froths it's like that but a much more effective version of that but the the chemistry of it is the same like you say you've got these bubbles that occur those bubbles then then stay suspended in the rubber the curing agent um adds sulfur to the rubber and that's quite chalky, as I recall. Like, uh, has a chalkiness yeah, is, to it. Like when you chalky. open the lid, you find it's it's chalky. So you put that in, and that basically is going to aid in strength and elasticity of the rubber. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you you could probably run a batch without curing agent in there, but it's your chances for failure increase. But it'll probably still work. Mm-hmm. And the the gelling agent is. Basically, it's it's a solution of um, bentonite clay filler, water, and sodium silicofluoride. I'm nodding sagely, but I have no idea Not, what that is. Yeah, you can look it up. It's it's based. It's a silico um, silicofluoride. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I do know that, that the gelling agent for formulation is Monster Makers, GM Foam, Berman. It's all the same. Okay. 
So you whip all that up in the in the in the mixer, and it is literally whipping it up. You have like a you know this full bucket or bowl that you put in your mixer, and you've got like an inch or two of, of liquid at the bottom of it. And then as you mix, you'll see that level rise as the air bubbles are you know, as the air is introduced to the mix, and it it literally expands and mm-hmm. so gets bigger. And then there's a prescribed point at which you would stop whipping up that high speed once you've got to your desired volume increase. Yeah, and and that's something you have to decide beforehand if you want a denser foam or a lighter foam. Denser foams are gonna gonna flow more more readily. They're gonna be more pourable than a than a real light foam is gonna be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shrinks more. But it's, it's gonna shrink more. And also, you need more of it to fill up the mold because yeah. obviously, when you whip up to increase the volume, you've got more stuff to get in the mold, but it's also going to be slower to pour into your syringe, or if you're going to hand fill it, it's going to be harder to get into all those nooks and crannies because it's lighter. It's yeah. Now, I've got a couple of um, five-quart KitchenAid mixers that are not the big industrial ones that you can do a, a double batch in one, but you can't froth it up as much as you would. You know, If you want a really light foam, you can't froth it really, really high because it'll, it'll just get all over the place. The bowl's not big enough. Um, so you'd need a much bigger mixer for that or run two, two at a time where you can do, do a batch in each one and then add them together. Okay. Um, so you end. use kitchen, kitchen aid is like the, the, the main brand over there. Cause over here we have the Kenwood chef, yeah, which was like the main kind of small mixer and then a big Hobart, big, Hobart. Which is a big yeah, jump which in price because they go up to sort of 40 or 50 liters of you know foam or even more, depending on how much foam you want to mix. And I think it's worth pointing out, you, you kind of need to, to, to run a few mixes, I think, probably to get used to your foam and also to know the volume increase in your bowl. Because if you're using the same mixer all the time, you'll get to know, oh, I just need a little bit lighter. So you'll know how much more to rise in that particular size container. Whereas if you were to just use a different mixer with a different shape bowl, even though the volumes increase the same, you do know what I mean? You don't know whereabouts on that height. Because I remember when I used to run foam, one of the things we'd look at was where, where the foam went up to on the beta. Mm-hmm. And then we could see, oh, we needed to go up another half inch. You know, you'd use the beta, the the height of the beta as a, as a kind of a gauge. Because obviously any kind of mark or any kind of indentation you'd put on the outside of the bowl would just get covered with the foam. So you wouldn't actually see it. So a lot of it was judgment as well as right. there was some precision in it, but there was also a lot of like, feeling your way and then suck it and see and see yeah, it ultimately comes down on. there's a lot of finessing and and you kind of just do it by feel yes you, the more you do it you just kind of get a sense of what you need to do i've got also got a sunbeam mixer that i that i use it doesn't it doesn't have the the, the same top speed that my two KitchenAid mixers do so i can't froth it up as much uh, but when i'm doing like a shrek cowl i'll do a, a triple batch. I'll do one batch each of the KitchenAid mixtures and a batch in the Sunbeam and then pour that into the other the two mixers so that it flows really, really nicely. But the nice thing about the, the Sunbeam mixer is you can actually back bowl it. You know, you can force the bowl to go the opposite direction of what its natural tendency is when when you're whipping it up. The drawback of the KitchenAid mixers is it's a fixed bowl. It's locked into place on the base and you can't back bowl with it. So what's the advantage of back bowling? Is it just that it changes the direction so you changes the direction it helps more thoroughly helps helps mix more thoroughly. Okay. I was going to say, how did you get your syringe in? Because uh, your, um, did you syringe in your, your gel? Did you kind of just squirt into the heart of the beta and then let it mix around, or did you just squirt around yeah, the what edges? I, what, I, what I do with it, I don't, I don't go for a, a really, really light 
froth just because it won't flow into into a mold. So I'll try to get it right on that edge where it still flows but is 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 really light. So min, minimal shrinkage. You can unlock the the mixture because you know the KitchenAids have one rotating beater in it rather than than the the dual beaters. And you can raise and lower it a little bit to to help aid in the mixing. I sometimes will put a golf ball or a ping pong ball in the middle of the mixer because there tends to be a dead space in the middle of of that mixer that where nothing seems to uh, kind of a no man's land. And the golf so if you, so if you can raise and lower the the beater, and it's and it's um, still f- got enough flow to it, it'll plop out of the mixer and and whip around and everything gets mixed nicely. But then that oh. comes back down to that takes a little practice to to get to a point where you can do that and not have the, the foam get flung all over the shop. I think it's worth pointing out with, with foam latex, it's one of those materials that you really got to give yourself to for a bit and just accept you're going to go on a little ride with it for a while. It's not necessarily going to do what you want straight off. You have to learn its ways and you've got to accept that you're going to, you're going to do some bad mixes just <laughs> you're unlikely to be incredibly successful the first time yeah, you do it so uh, that, build that into your schedule get, get there. <laughs> which again is one of those reasons why it's probably not something that's attractive to people who are just starting out because they can mix up you know silicon in their garage or the kitchen or whatever and you know no foul but uh with foam latex you kind of need like a dedicated space you need enough ventilate if you don't have extraction at least have ventilation and you know you're a mask and you've got the door or the window open so you need access to some fresh air yeah. and all those kinds of things um but it's it's it, it's uh it, it is an amazing material and it's it, it's it's one of those kind of key materials that you need really if you're going to get seriously into prosthetics of any kind learn how to do it and i think also <laughs> it's weird how the irony of the relationship between platinum silicons, which we use a lot now with latex in the, you know, the chemistry of silicon prosthetics is, you know, this, this, this magical fusing of the uh, two components and their cross linking, you know, and that can be interrupted by, you know, contamination from latex. So mm-hmm. even if I remember we did a job years ago at Millennium Effects, it was a, for a TV show and that we had uh, this makeup, I think Martin Rizard had sculpted and it was an old age makeup. It was a beautiful job. And for some reason, every time we ran silicon in it, this was before we had cat plastic barriers. So it was an A and B stipple barrier. Um, every time we ran it, I think we ran it about three or four times. There was a portion of the face that would not cure. It was sticky, which basically meant the piece was unusable. And we ended up running it, I think, in gelatine because it just wouldn't work. And we suspect maybe that was because if someone had uh, who'd helped clean it out or something had latex gloves uh-huh. and had handled the mold. So whether that was the case or not, but it, it just kind of showed how kind of fragile that was, you know, and it's, I think people have got a lot more savvy about it and they, you know, a lot of workshops now don't even have latex gloves in, in the workshop and we don't use it, but it's just quite funny to see how latex is still a great material to use despite fears about, you know, allergies or whatever. And it's just ironic that the material that we use for years almost exclusively was latex and foam latex. And then along comes this thing to kind of usurp it. And it's like, but the one thing that they can't, be in the same mold is is latex <laughs> because but things are, things have changed it. chemistry has changed now where i've actually done done silicone and foam latex out of the same mold without having silicone inhibition problems now how did you do that did you use inhibit x the uh, the smooth on product x is is an amazing product it's from smooth on um so you can force cure uh silicone inhibitions but if you clean your mold out really well you wash it well with soap and water and then give it a, 
a good spritzing with Inhibit X, I've had no problems with. Not that's not to say you know that's not a caveat. Don't just because it works for me doesn't mean it's going to work all the time every time. I've been fortunate uh, that way, but I've done tests using Inhibit X where I actually brushed out a, a layer of latex rubber, you just mask rubber on a on a bench surface, let it let it cure, sprayed two thin layers of Inhibit-X on the latex out of one of those Preval sprayers that, that I like to use, and then mixed up a small batch of platinum silicone and dumped it on the rubber, and it's okay. set up against the rubber just fine. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, always thought, I thought Inhibit-X was something you added to the silicon as a component rather than a, a surface, or can you use it you both could, ways? You can, you can use it multiple ways. It, it's essentially okay. a platinum solution. You can use it to in to increase your uh, or decrease your set time, so that you can it'll it'll set up faster. I've seen where I've where I've uh, used it in a in a stone mold where I had foam in before and wanted to put silicone in it. Um, an old mold, thankfully, it wasn't wasn't a mold I cared deeply for. But I sprayed it with Inhibit X, poured silicone into the mold before it was fully dry. And the Inhibit X act as a, an adhesive, basically bonded the silicone to the stone. Amazing. So nothing to, for sure, you know, there's always ways around it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still very nervous around latex and silicon being, you know, used together. Yeah, it's, and, like you and said, there are, there are ways around it and you can kind of work with it. Yeah, just know that it's, it's, not, it's not as black and white as it used to be. But I still, you know, exercise caution because you, the last thing you want is to have silicone inhibition problems on a on a time sensitive project and mm -hmm. then have to troubleshoot back and figure it out. And you, know, you don't want to do that. On this one, we've really looked, talked about just an overview of foam latex, really, um, because I think the thing is there's there's different aspects to foam latex. There's obviously the, the material itself is how it's made, the equipment you would use with it, the problems, the advantages. And then once you've run the piece, then you've got to prepare it, seam it, uh, you know, apply it and paint it. And so it's quite a wide open view. So I think this will work as a good sort of primer just to kind of establish foam latex of material because we haven't really discussed that yet. And then basically just over to you who's listening, if there's a question you have about foam latex or if you have any problems, again, do write into stuartandtodd at gmail.com and, and ask us. And we'll, I think the next one we're going to look at uh, the, the sort of working with foam latex with, with regards to like the painting of it because I think that's a big one because a lot of people may buy foam latex pieces they won't necessarily mm -hmm. want to make them but they may buy them and they want to apply them and they're having troubles with it because because painting foam latex is a unique thing and i'm i'm quite grateful for the fact that i kind of cut my teeth on foam latex and opaque paint jobs before silicon came along um so i feel quite comfortable talking about that because i think it's one of those things that i like but i, I <laughs> if you're working with people that haven't used it that much it's, it's quite funny to see how upsetting it can be to use and it's like oh you know it's just it's one of those things you just got to get your head around and once you kind of sin sure because your painting becomes a lot painting, easier you're painting a sponge essentially and yeah. you don't want to put too much paint on or else it just soaks up and and looks weird and i mean I, I know that from there i mean the the, the thing is like creature suits and stuff i know like the whole you know you paint with like uh, a rubber cement solution and that could be mixed with oil paints, and that gives a different kind of finish. That gives you a much less wrinkly finish than, say, Pax paints. But uh, but they're the kind of things that you would paint on a suit, not on a person. So if you're making a suit, 
that's you know hanging up in a workshop you can spray that with this solution but once something's on a person you can't really use the same chemicals because a lot of those are, are not very pleasant until they've evaporated and they've dried then they're kind of safe when they're in their liquid state when you're using like you know heptane and rubber yeah. cement solution and stuff you don't want to be spraying that on the person so there are different you know materials you can use depending on what you want if you've got the option of pre-painting your appliances before gluing them onto an actor then you can do some of that but if you're waiting until it's all glued on, then you definitely need to pay attention to what the solvents are that you're using in the in the pigments. So your actor will continue to speak to you. Yeah, that's nice when they do that. You deliver their lines without slurring. That's nice. <laughs> or sometimes they do that and it's their own fault because they just had lunch that came out of the hip flask. Who knows? Uh, and I'm just going to finish off on a couple of things, uh, some new materials from, from Neil Gorton. I've tried. There's a couple of things that are quite exciting. One is... Um, the, a lot of the, the people have had issues with, uh, uh, shipping ball cap plastic because obviously it's, it's a flammable liquid. Yep. Neil's now started stocking beads. Did you know about this? I, I saw that and I'm, I'm dying to try them. I, have you, have you had a chance to? Uh, I haven't, but, uh, because I've never had a problem getting the, the cap plastic in. <laughs> yeah, but it's what a here. great idea. But, uh, but it's a great idea. So basically the, the ball cap plastic is sold as the plastic bead, which is how it's manufactured. So it's shipped as a dry, you know, as a dry bead, there's no leakage involved. And then when you receive the bead, you put them in acetone and it comes with instructions you have you you put them in the acetone you leave them for a few days and then it, it breaks down into uh, the liquid uh, cat plastic that you finally need but it just means that he can ship it to places where previously it was a, a hazard to ship and i was speaking to neil today about this and it's like you know things read as hazardous it's like oh it's dangerous does that mean it's bad on skin it's like no it's hazardous because it's flammable but so is aftershave you know what i mean it's yeah. like so it's it's hazardous to ship because it might leak so that's why they're reluctant to post it. And it just means that shipping a lot of flammable liquids becomes expensive, even though it's not that it is dangerous in itself. It's just that if it caught on fire in a plane, then it would be a problem. You know, the fact that there's kerosene and, and duty-free aftershaves is irrelevant on an aircraft. But uh, but the point is, it just means now if you've had trouble trying to get cat plastic because it's been a, a flammable liquid in a container, now you can buy the dry bead itself, which doesn't leak. And then when you get that, you can source your own acetone wherever you are. And then combine them. You can source acetone depending on where. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think this is the thing. I think people can get acetone. It's just that they can't easily get a container that has acetone in it, and obviously, a liquid that's traveling through flight is it's subject to different kind of regulations. So, it's uh, as a material, it's fine. It's just getting it posted that's a problem so neil's beads are very good i'll, I'll put a link up on that uh, and the other thing which is trying and i've tried it myself is neil's got a new glue or a couple of new glues one is pro key which is is an acrylic adhesive uh, very similar to prose and it works great and also silky which is uh, a silicon based glue which i've tried and that's very very good um, and i was trying to figure out all this um stuff and i spoke to him about it and basically he's got these a range of key materials like you know your key colors and things that are um uh, you know, the essential things that we all use in our kit. So it's worth looking at those things. But I was Has very anyone, excited about the idea of that. It'd be interesting to see if anyone's tried using the the new Pro Key for doing I've used transfers. It. For transfers? Oh, oh, for tra- no, I've not used it for transfers. That's a very good question. Oh, I don't know about that. That's very interesting. I've used it to apply uh, silicon transfers and silicon pieces. I've used the uh, the Silky one, and that works very, very well. So um, I'm very cool. Very good happy to, with good that. to know. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's worth it's worth checking out those things because they're good. But the the the, the beads thing for the cat plastic. Genius. I love it. Thanks, Neil. Please do get in touch. This uh, foam latex primer, uh, but just this this introduction to foam latex is uh, just going to kick us off. But I'm really excited about talking about the painting of and I want to 
maybe we'll see if we can get a couple of guests who are rather well known for their painting skills involved. That would be nice. Not mentioning any names. Absolutely. Thomas, Sopranon. Yep. That would be really good. Because, I mean, the thing is as well that you, th there are different ways to paint foam latex. It's not just one way. So I think it'd be quite nice to get some different takes on, on how to do these things. Um, yeah, and, and think, we could pick Tom's yeah. brain because he has a, a line of, of his own PAX paints that are different than other PAX paints. That would be good to speak on. Yeah. Mustard. That's just mustard. Mustard. Do you all still use that expression? I've heard it, but I've... <laughs> it, it can mean something different as well. Oh, yeah? Because yeah? you, you get a okay. mustard pickle, which is, which is uh, Cockney Romans have a cripple. So if someone's if he's a bit mustard, it's, <laughs> no. mustard means good. Yeah, good, brilliant, good. Yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> very good. Foam latex, it's smelly but good. <laughs> There's our catchphrase: foam latex, it's smelly but good. All right, dude. Yeah. We'll chat soon. Cool. Look forward to it. All right, mate. Take care. Later.